You see, what we're actually trying to do here is we're just, we're trying to get a feel for how people spend their day at work. So if you would, would you walk us through a typical day for you? Yeah. Great. Well, I generally come in at least 15 minutes late. Uh, I use the side door. That way Lumber can't see me. <laughs> and uh, after that, I just sort of space out for about an hour. Tell but, uh, space out? Yeah. I just stare at my desk. But it looks like I'm working. I do that for uh, probably another hour after lunch, too. I'd say in a given week, I probably only do about 15 minutes of real, actual work. That clip is, of course, from the cult movie classic Office Space, and certainly one of my particular favorite movies. For those who aren't aware, Office Space pokes fun at work life in a typical 1990s software company, focusing on a handful of people who don't particularly like their jobs nor the environment in which they work. This movie followed 10 years after another famous movie, 9 to 5, starring Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin, and Dolly Parton as three working women who live out their fantasies of getting even with and overthrowing the company's autocratic, sexist, egotistical, lying, hypocritical boss, played by Dabney Coleman. 95 had a strong depiction of how some viewed the corporate culture during the 80s and captured what many disliked about the workplace. It culminated most interestingly in the inception of the main female characters taking control of the office and implementing such forward-thinking ideas at the time as hmm, diversity, putting women in traditional male roles, childcare, and working flexible hours for working parents. I illustrate these two movie examples as although these two movies are indeed purely entertainment, they do give a glimpse of how the workplace was viewed within two distinct separate decades. Each illustrates a bit of a dystopian view of what it was like to work in a corporate office during their respective decades. And this does beg the question, is this truly the perception? And moreover, is this a fair depiction of corporate office life and culture? So the paramount questions to examine are, how did we get here? How did the thought or perception of the corporate office become thought of as such a dystopian environment? And was this a synopsis of what corporate office life was like in different periods throughout our history? If so, then why? And what does the future of office workplace have in store for all of us moving forward? These are all topics that we're going to tackle in my first full episode series, Workplace Design, Past, Present, and Future, where we'll explore the evolution of office workplace design, how we currently work together in office both pre- and post-pandemic, the dynamic of remote and in-person working, and most importantly, what does the future of quote-unquote corporate office working look like? Now, I have to say I'm excited about this series, mainly due to the design studio I collaboratively lead at my firm. We do a significant amount of corporate interior and office design work. Furthermore, Corporate office design has always checked a lot of boxes for me and somewhat solidifies to an extent why I got into architecture and design in the first place. As corporate interior work somewhat epitomizes a blend of two things that I enjoy, psychology and design, mainly as it pertains to how people work in their environments and how design and architecture plays a large part 
utilizing the ability to create dynamic and collaborative spaces that can accentuate and heighten people's abilities. Now, what you can expect from this multi-episode series is a medley of the evolution through time of how we got here, some interviews with industry experts, and a bit of a conclusion on where perhaps the future holds for workplace design and office life. I hope you'll join me in this first chapter of the series as we begin our journey by discussing the evolution of workplace design. So prior to discussing the evolution of workplace, we can actually go as far back as medieval monks, who had spaces devoted to writing and copying manuscripts called scriptoriums, which could be construed as perhaps the first cubicle. Also, in 1494, the Italian artist Sandro Botticelli created a painting that illustrates cubicles utilizing scribes with shelves and even a privacy curtain. But don't worry, this isn't our starting point in the discussion of the evolution of the modern office. However, I couldn't help but bringing these fun facts out. Instead, we're going to start with the Industrial Revolution. Although official office work goes way back in time, I will tend to focus on the inception of the office and office design during the Industrial Revolution as a start. Now, going back to 1726 in London, England, following the first colonization of the West Indies and increased trade throughout the world during the expansion of the British Empire, in order to handle the high level of paperwork now created by typewriters, quote-unquote office buildings were starting to pop up all over London. At the time, however, the idea of an office job was viewed quite differently than that of the manual or vocational occupations. To the extent the British government stated that, and I quote, for intelligent work, separate rooms are necessary so that a person who works with his head may not be interrupted. But for the more mechanical work, the working in concert of a number of clerks in the same room under supervision is the proper mode of meeting it. So wait, apparently at this time, during the Industrial Revolution, the government was not only able to demean the manual laborer, but also the typical office worker? Interesting. The Industrial Revolution brought upon Taylorism, which was developed by Frederick Winslow Taylor. Taylorism was a management theory that sought to analyze workflow. Taylorism was very influential in its time and became the early rule of thumb for workplace design in the early 20th century. The design concept of Taylorism created a rigid hierarchy within the office utilizing layouts with managers on the perimeter that encircled rows upon rows of straight-line desks of clerical staff. The office buildings created for such designs were generally long, narrow buildings. In an attempt to provide an abundance of natural light, the buildings tended to be long and narrow, which ultimately created plans that ended up as double-loaded corridors with a sea of repetitive desks, which created, as you can imagine, a pretty dismal working environment. Which brings us to a bit of a lesson learned to Taylorism. There emerged a strong interest and thus research into interpersonal relationships, and moreover the study of how people work and interact together. And this was important at the time. Research following the Second World War showed that motivated employees and high morale 
led to increased productivity and staff motivation. Now, it's important to note that during this period, architecture and engineering were making some important advancements. The new office building started to include a curtain wall system. Now, in short, a typical curtain wall system is made up of thin aluminum framed walls with infill panels, usually consisting of glass, metal, or stone. The main structure itself would still be comprised of steel and concrete. However, in this case, the non-structural curtain wall framing would be attached to the building structure and the exterior curtain wall system would not really carry any of the floor or roof loading. Additionally, ambient or aesthetic lighting, full HVAC distribution, and suspended ceiling systems offered architects and interior designers and engineers a lot of office design freedom. As manufacturing during the post-war era blossomed, this also introduced rapid growth for office staffing and a strong desire to progress out of the first half of the 20th century. However, a new concept would emerge as there was a new thought process that would buck the trend of the previous rigid, large, open office, encompassing many rows of clerical workers. In 1958, a German consultancy group called Quickborner Group, started by brothers Eberhardt and Wolfgang Schnell, introduced Burrowlandschaft, which in translation means office landscape. The concept of the office landscape would be to create a more organic layout, encouraging natural lighting and spatial organization. The overall concept was to arrange teams organically based more on workflow and internal communication needs. Here managers were now removed from the perimeter offices and integrated into the main open plan. Areas were separated by plants and movable screens or partitions that were moved according to how select teams were communicating. This thought process encouraged staff at all management levels to sit together in one open office floor plan in an effort to increase internal collaboration and eliminate the hierarchy previously created during the earlier Industrial Revolution. Additionally, it was thought that with managers working in close proximity of the team, it would squelch the hierarchy and negative culture that have previously been the norm. An advantage of this design was it was readily adaptable and affordable since the partition made it easy for various size companies to either upsize or downsize. At this time, this preferred workplace strategy became wildly popular through Europe and started to slowly make its way to the United States. The open plan used irregular geometry with organic circulation patterns to enhance equal nature of the plan. Employee densities were intentionally kept lower than typical so as to minimize noise and acoustic issues. The main goal of the open landscape idea was to create a one-size-fits-all workplace option for companies big and small. Now, in my opinion, the quote-unquote office landscape strategy could be considered the first workplace strategy trend. I state this because as soon as Quickborner won their first commission with a German publishing company, which went on for a couple years, other companies started to adapt their offices to this new, exciting, quote-unquote, open office plan. Soon this design concept would spread to Sweden, Britain, and ultimately the United States. Her machines make noise, noise the rest of the office can't tolerate. Her work is critical. 
She needs superior lighting. She doesn't need bulky one-inch cords to trip over. She needs space for her machines along with room for herself. She needs places for personal storage and an easy way to get at it. She needs decor, color, warmth, vitality, and something as basic and all-inclusive as dignity. She's an action secretary. And she needs action office. This leads us to the AO1, or the action office. In 1964, a furniture design and manufacturing company called Herman Miller set out to change their paradigm in workplace design. Their offering to interior design would be known as the Action Office, or AO1. The father of the Action Office was Robert Probst, who proposed the notion that office work was mental work and that such mental work effort had very much to do with one's environment or surrounding. Robert was an American inventor and researcher and was hired by Hugh Dupree, the founder of Herman Miller, to, quote, find problems outside the furniture industry and conceive solutions for them, unquote. Robert is credited for such inventions as a vertical timber harvester, a quality control system for concrete, an electric tagging system for livestock, a mobile office for quadriplegics, modular systems for use in hospitals. Propes was partnered with George Nelson, an industrial designer who, through a successful career, became lead designer for the Herman Miller Company. A modernist at heart, Nelson designed 20th century modern furniture, and to some he's considered a founder of the American modernist design. Robert first created the Herman Miller Research Company studio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, not too far from the Herman Miller headquarters located in Zeeland, Michigan. Now, as you can imagine, partnering a modernist designer with a data research-driven inventor, there were collisions to say the least. Probst's philosophy of research first and design later was not very well accepted by Nelson, who wanted to start with a design first. Anyone working in design, architecture, or engineering fields probably knows exactly what I'm talking about. Now, Probst started to look at the office design by posing a set of general research questions such as, what is the purpose of the office? What is the nature of work in the office? And what effects does the office have on productivity and health? Additionally, Probst's own experience of working in a corporate office for several years was used as a basis to start his research. Probst in 1960 is famously quoted as saying, today's office is a wasteland. It is a daily scene of unfulfilled intentions and failed efforts. It fosters both mental and physical decline and depresses capabilities to perform, end quote. In its inception, Probst used their own office as well as a Herman Miller office as a bit of a testing ground using experiential observation. The team also coordinated with behavioral scientists and medical experts for their research. Additionally, the research team worked with Harvard psychologists who studied how the human mind sorts and stores information, which led to organizational system, which is the filing system of the first action office. The research team, through human positioning, studies learned that the desk should be facing away from a door in a private office. Medical data also provided the team with the idea that 
White collar work leads to decrease in energy, vitality, and body tone. The team studied in person the work habits and patterns of those employees that they considered to be quote-unquote exceptional performers. These were people who they considered to be creative, strong leaders, or generally productive. From their observations, they came up with multiple workstations to further collaboration. As a team created several prototypes and tested employees with a creativity test, the findings showed that vertical surfaces displaying information led to much increased idea production. This finding led to adding a vertical tackboard panel to the Action Office Station, a feature still used in most workstations today. An added feature of the Action Office was a modesty panel, now that more women were entering a male-dominated office. More so than simply furniture, what would eventually be called the Action Office started as primarily an idea or research concept. The Action Office would depart from the previous idea that someone would be stationed solely at a desk for the duration of their workday. Instead, the Action Office was primarily centered around movement and interaction, while at the same time creating a workstation that would promote efficiency, privacy, and health. In 1964, the first Action Office was launched, touted as the first modular office system, and it was released to much excitement. The first Action Office featured multiple modules for storage, ability for standing or seated work, offering customizable arrangements, which would define space without walls, and encourage movement and interaction. The desk and shelves featured vertical display services that would allow more visibility display of information. The desk featured a closable roll-up desk that could be closed at night without disrupting workflow, but was short enough not to allow the potential of paper piles that we all recognize for sure. The desk also included a foot bar for comfort while sitting, which was the first time really that ergonomics would be considered in office furniture. All the while, Nelson created an innovative design, as you can imagine, it was pretty modern. However, Nelson's design was quite forward-thinking. His desks rested on a can cantilevered die-cast aluminum legs for the standing desk, a chrome base which doubled as a footrest, as I said earlier. The Action Office was considered to be a communication center with a telephone and insulated walls. The color schemes offered were green, blue, bright blue, navy blue, black, and yellow. The color schemes Nelson used was certainly cutting edge with the time as this was the type of bold advertising, pop art, like such greats as Warhol and Lichtenstein at the time. And here's a fun fact, the first action office desks were considered so futuristic and cutting edge, it was actually used in the movie of what I would easily put in my favorite top 10, 2001 A Space Odyssey. And although the Action Office won an Alcoa Award that year, the press and clients were not too keen on the overall product. The issue with the first Action Office is that large-scale clients didn't like the wholesale change in office and architects and interior designers at the time found it kind of difficult in laying out an entire office with this furniture. And thus, it was found to be too expensive, as the materials were, sadly, quality materials, and too challenging as the spatial borders were too far porous and inefficient. In fact, seeing these designs, Industrial Magazine stated, 
one wonders why office workers have to put up with their incompatible, unproductive, uncomfortable environment for so long. And the Saturday Evening Post said of it, Office workers of America, beware. The action office is coming. We are in danger of being enabled to work at 100% efficiency. And keep in mind that for, for Probst, the first action office was simply a prototype that he was going to learn from. Enter the Action Office 2, or the AO2. As Probst would lick his wounds from the first Action Office, much like all great inventors, he would rethink the process. He was able to get Dupree to allow him another go at revising the product. Now, at this time, offices were changing. The loud cadence of typewriters would slowly be making their way to the computer and thus the keyboard. At this time, Probst felt that the office should be, quote-unquote, forgiving. Moreover, he felt, as a lesson learned, over-design and over-stylized spaces were unforgiving barriers against change and, given the computer change was coming, whether you liked it or not. As the office work itself was becoming what Probst called task of judgment, it was understood that with the advent of technology, the way people would work in offices would continually be evolving. It was this new direction that Probst understood would have to be flexible and adaptable to the changing office. As you can imagine with this new functional approach, the relationship that Probst had with Nelson, which already wasn't solid, certainly wasn't going to last. As Nelson, like most designers, was fixated on the style and the materiality of the furniture, which Probst saw as an obstacle to the final goal. In 1967, Probst began the second iteration of the Action Office at the University of Tennessee School of Architecture. This new prototype, which would become the first quote-unquote workstation for what he called human performers, would derive the pedestal wall, which would lead to the future of the cubicle. However, it was found through much research that angling the three walls 120 degrees allowed privacy while also having unexpected connections and interactions with the idea to form somewhat of a honeycomb environment. The partition similar to the first version would allow for vertical information to be displayed, but now the partitions would have the ability for mountable elements, such as storage and filing, while bringing storage off the ground for better ergonomics and efficiency. The partitions would be of varied height and utilize tackable services with pushpin areas. The station had a slightly small footprint and the walls were lighter and made of less costly disposable materials, which would allow flexibility and mobility that Prost had originally intended. The year after Action Office 2 was released, Herman Miller saw a $10 million increase in their annual revenue. This time around, the New York Post hailed it as a revolution hits the office. Although there was great success to the Action Office 2, it did have one stark opponent. You guessed it, George Nelson, who wrote a letter to the chairman of Herman Miller in 1970 and stated, one does not have to be perceptive critic to realize that the AO2 is definitely not a system which produces an environment gratifying for people in general. He went on to say, but it is admirable for planners looking for ways of cramming in 
maximum number of bodies for employees, for personnel, corporate zombies, the walking dead, the silent majority, a large market. Given the success of the Action Office 2, it led to many other furniture companies making replica systems or their own versions of that system. Unfortunately, as many companies grew and designers were forced to design around bottom lines and cramming more staffing into smaller office plans, the 120 degree workstation walls were adapted to squared off walls, which would become as what we know today, the cubicle. Now employers had realized that they could fit way more employees by restricting the size of their space and making a much smaller confined cubicle. Probst later would be blamed as one, the one who created the cubicle, but he was really against the idea of the cubicle of the late 70s and early 80s. He's quoted by saying, not all organizations are intelligent and progressive. And just a few years prior to his death, he was stated as saying, Lots are run by crass people. They make little bitty cubicles and stuff people in them. Barren rat hole places. So in a way, I think he indirectly is blamed for what we know to be the cubicle today. But keep in mind that wasn't his original intention. Next, let's discuss open office plans of the 80s and 90s. The 1980s and 1990s brought about far-reaching sea of cubes deemed the cubicle farm. The 1980s brought about even more technology advances. Cutting-edge technologies such as the fax machine were introduced as well as a standard for having a landline at each individual desk. The idea of the open office seemed to quickly vanish to make way for the smaller, harder edges with high walls. The idea is that corporate America was transitioning to utilize every square inch of a floor plate that one could, while also getting every ounce of productivity out of each of the employees. The design philosophy tended now to be based more on profits over people. But then again, it was the 80s. And just to let you know something that happened to me early on in my field of architecture, I worked at a very large, I can't say the company, it was a big box retailer, and I worked in the design department. And it was very much of this sort of dystopian sort of uh, work environment. And we had a bet that I never actually did, but I had always wanted to know if I never showed up, how long would it take people to notice that I wasn't there? And it usually arranged between a week to two weeks. I always thought it would be about a week. But it tells you the kind of environment that offices were at the time, because it was a, a never-ending sea of cubicles. And the 1980s, in some cases, also went back to the private offices with cubicles in the center and offices placed around the perimeter of the centralized area. The 80s was certainly the era where cubicle became what people now attribute to the dystopian office environment that would often be ridiculed by Hollywood and comics like Dilbert. The 1990s brought about more technology with cellular phones and large effective laptops. Desks now would have to house large desktop towers with oversized bulky monitors. 
The 1990s brought about the tech or dot-com boom, and as such, people rethought how office should work. Many companies were repurposing their offices, wanting to get away from the stark culture that cramped cubicle farms of the 80s. Designers and furniture companies thought that by removing physical boundaries, which were deemed as barriers to interaction, it should, in fact, increase interaction. Thus entered the open office. It was the idea that the emphasis would be more on collaboration. It was thought that with the advent of open areas with workstations and not tall cubicles, it would create a more relaxed and casual workplace with comfortable furniture, dynamic decor, and flexible or gathering space to promote social interaction. Companies such as Apple, Amazon, Google, and Facebook were huge proponents of this trend and redesigned their office from the cubicle to the open office concept. The open office centered around transparency with fewer walls, doors, and other spatial boundaries. The open office, it was thought, would save money on real estate, spur interaction, and therefore promoting more collaboration on specific tasks, higher job satisfaction, productivity, and social support. As office work evolved through this decade, there was also a trend to move toward a paperless society. Therefore, filing cabinets and even desk filing would start to be slowly phased out. In lieu of the file storage, it became more important to have the space for personal items such as coats, purses, or planners. In an odd way, even though the open office concept would depart from the utilitarian cubicle, it was not without its challenges. Even though the overall concept of the open office was to foster collaboration and interactions, research has shown that employees spend less time face-to-face and instead resorted to instant messaging, emails, to communicate. The big challenge, which we still face today, as you may have guessed it, noise, which has shown can foster distractions and cut down on productivity. Now, noise, I believe, has become the largest contributing factor on the lack of success of the open office. In that, the unintended consequence of office noise was, and continues to be, to tune out. Meaning employees now simply tune out while listening to music or podcasts, which in turn then becomes less productive. Unless, of course, you're listening to my podcast, in which case they're certainly bettering their lives. But the unintended consequence with headphones or earbuds is that all communication will now be forced to be electronic. In studies conducted by Ethan Bernstein and Stephen Turbin for the Royal Society, they found that contrary to popular belief, the volume of face-to-face interaction and collaboration decreased significantly, about 70% in both studies, there was an associated increase in electronic interaction. They surmised that rather than prompting increasingly vibrant face-to-face collaboration, open architecture appeared to trigger a natural human response to socially withdraw from office mates and interact instead over email and IM. They stated their finding and conclusions as follows. Consistent with fundamental human desire for privacy and prior evidence that privacy may increase productivity, When office architecture makes everyone more observable or transparent, it can dampen face-to-face interaction, as employees find other strategies to preserve their privacy, for example, by choosing a different channel through which 
to communicate. Rather than have a face-to-face interaction in front of a large audience of peers, an employee might look around, see that a particular person is at his or her desk, and send an email. A different study conducted by Harvard researchers focused on 456 employees in 20 regional office locations of an architecture firm in the U.S., found that they themselves didn't like working in such a space. The study, which was published in November in the Journal of Frontiers in Psychology, found that working in the open plan office limits the experience of privacy and intensifies the perception of intrusion among employees. In this case, architects and designers. Additionally, employees' perception of lack of privacy and high office density negatively affected job satisfaction, work engagement, and internal work relations as well as increased the number of limited ability days. Steelcase, one of the largest office furniture manufacturers, continually studies the impact of how we work. Steelcase provided an open office study including 10,000 workers and found that 95% of the respondents said that working privately was important to them, but only 41% said they could do so. This statistic is not surprising as research conducted by IPSOS showed that employees say they were distracted on an average 90 minutes a day. Toward the end of the 90s, however, it soon became commonplace that less and less staff were in the office altogether. And although it would be due mainly to fiscal reasons, i.e. why should I spend thousands of dollars on a cubicle and workstation along with so much square footage when somebody could work anywhere, even on the golf course. So for the first time, the idea of remote working was starting to be taken seriously. So at this point, I will close this first episode of Workplace Design, Past, Present, and Future, as I think it was a good early recap of the workplace history, which brought us through the Industrial Revolution through the 1990s. I also thought this was a good place to put a bookmark, as the next episode and subsequent associated decades really deals more with remote working. And since remote working is here to stay, I thought it best to discuss the advent of remote working starting from the 2000s through the pandemic and to now. So till then, I give you the outro music. I try to find an office-related song to end on. So to close out, here is a portion of my version of the Arctic Monkey song, Don't Sit Down Cause I Move Your Chair.